This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll begin reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency this week, and the first article, Birmingham, Alabama, Synagogue Fire, wasn't an anti-Semitic attack, Rabbi says, by Felissa Kramer. A man was taken into custody after authorities in the Birmingham, Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, investigated a suspicious fire adjacent to a synagogue there on Friday. The fire, which came as Jews across the United States are on high alert, was determined not to be motivated by hatred against Jews, Rabbi Stephen Henkin of Temple Bethel told congregants over Shabbat. The man had also set other fires in the city, Henkin said authorities had determined. There is no evidence of an anti-Semitic attack, Henkin said, during Friday night services, which were streamed on Facebook. He has admitted to lighting it and said it had nothing to do with us being a synagogue. But the rabbi who addressed the incident again against, uh, again during Saturday morning services said the motive for the incident was almost immaterial at a time of rising anti-Semitism in the United States. It doesn't really matter whether it was anti-Semitic or if it wasn't. When we didn't know, it certainly felt like it could have been, Henkin said. As a community, we should all be grateful that it wasn't, and it still makes us feel a little fearful and scared and anxious that with everything going on in the world as it is, we are aware that it just as easily could have been. The fire took place while synagogues in New Jersey were under an FBI warning about a broad threat to them. A man there was taken into custody on Friday, and the threat was lifted. Meanwhile, anti-Semitic comments by rapper Kanye West have focused attention on Jews and the hatred they face. White supremacist hate groups, including the Goyim Defense League, have adopted West's comments as a rallying cry, ratcheting up their activity across the United States. Meanwhile, the change of leadership at Twitter has spurred anti-Semites to target Jews and other minorities online, and NBA star Kyrie Irving has faced consequences after endorsing an anti-Semitic movie. The Birmingham incident quickly drew national attention, including from anti-Semitism watchdogs, but authorities there determined that it was unrelated, Hankin said. Bethel community members observed evidence of a fire in a breezeway on the conservative synagogue's campus and alerted authorities early Friday morning, according to an account published by the Birmingham Police Department. Police found that a propane tank wrapped in clothing had been set ablaze inside a locked area of the campus. They also used a robotic device to assess a backpack found at the synagogue, which was determined not to contain explosives, and the community was cleared to return to the building during Shabbat. Temple Beth El is one of four synagogues in Birmingham, a 150-year-old community with about 6,300 Jews, according to a 2016 study by the Birmingham Jewish Federation. Henkin and others present at Friday night services said the synagogue's safety plan, created in conjunction with the Jewish nonprofit Secure Community Network, had been effective. The security system worked, which was good, and the communal response was fantastic, Henkin said, noting that Jewish and non-Jewish leaders in Birmingham had reached out to offer support, as had representatives of national Jewish organizations. He added, it was a scary time and we were not alone. Henkin referenced the New Jersey threat, Weston Irving, during his speech on Saturday morning. 
when he again offered details about the incident at Bethel and told his congregants that it was valid for them to feel attacked, even if authorities had determined that they were not targeted because they are Jewish. Still, he said the right response was not to give in to the fear of anti-Semitism. There are lots of ways we can react to yesterday, Henkin said. We could become scared, frightened, and fearful and let it affect us. We can pull ourselves back, withdraw, put up barriers and walls as a way to protect ourselves. We can be angry, hurt, and pained and allow that to make us lash out at anyone and anything. We can refuse to hear anything or anyone but what we want to hear and hate everyone else for what suffering they caused us, he said. Or we can overcome those feelings and be present here today, recognizing we are not alone. Temple Bethel was one of at least four synagogues in the South targeted in a wave of bombings in the late 1950s. The bombings were widely understood to reflect white resentment against Jewish participation in the movement for black civil rights. None of the Birmingham culprits were caught in part because the FBI declined an invitation to investigate a U.S. Senate hearing in 1959 revealed. The synagogue erected a plaque commemorating the bombing, which was thwarted in July. And next from JTA, as anti-Semitism spikes following Elon Musk takeover, ADL calls for Twitter ad boycott by Andrew Lappin. Jewish groups thought Elon Musk was listening to them about anti-Semitism on Twitter. Then Kanye West came back. In the week after the rapper, who now goes by Yee, lost most of his endorsements due to his anti-Semitic rants and amid an apparent uptick in broader anti-Semitic content on the platform, the Anti-Defamation League met with Musk, the social media giant's mercurial new owner, about keeping hate speech off the site. Three days later, all goodwill from the meeting has devolved as anti-Jewish content on Twitter is experiencing a prolific surge According to the Network Contagion Research Institute, a firm that monitors the spread of online hate and disinformation, the Institute said Friday that terms associated with Jew are being tweeted over 5,000 times per hour and that the most engaged tweets are overtly anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, West has begun calling out individual Jews such as music mogul Scooter Braun and the sports branding businessman Jamie Salter on his account, and online networks of anti-Semites have seized on Musk's ownership as an opportunity to launch a full-court press of hateful content on the site. Now, instead of working alongside Musk to develop new content moderation tools, the ADL is calling on all advertisers to suspend their relationship with Twitter while offering a harsh critique of Musk's leadership. We met with Elon Musk earlier this week to, to express our profound concerns about some of his plans and the spike of, in toxic content after his acquisition, the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition, a group that includes the ADL, said in a statement. Since that time, hate and disinformation have proliferated, and he has taken actions that make us fear that the worst is yet to come. The group's relationship with Musk came off the rails with stunning speed. At their initial meeting, the ADL and various members of the coalition, including the NAACP, Color of Change, the Asian American Foundation, and media equity advocacy group Free Press had pushed Musk to develop robust content moderation tools. 
The group also tried to get Musk to stop tweeting out conspiracy theories and problematic content himself. The entrepreneur had previously tweeted, then deleted a, right, a link to a right-wing conspiracy theory involving a man who had attacked House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband at his house. The attacker himself was active in many anti-Semitic conspiracy theories online. Musk tweeted approvingly about the ADL meeting afterward, a move that enraged some of his anti-Semitic fans. And ADL Vice President Yael Eisenstadt told Protocol that Musk had assured the groups he didn't want Twitter to become a hate amplifier. But by late Thursday, West, one of Twitter's most popular users with 38 million followers, began his latest anti-Semitic tirade on the platform, which he had recently been reinstated on following a suspension for hate speech. Musk said he played no role in West's reinstatement. Seemingly prompted by the media attention given to Brooklyn Nets player Kyrie Irving in the wake of the, Star's, the Star Guard's own anti-Semitism controversy, West posted a series of conspiratorial messages about various Jewish figures. Beyond Braun and Salter, he called out celebrity personal trainer Harley Pasternak and Amari Stoudemire, the former NBA star who converted to Orthodox Judaism in 2020 and had a brief stint at a, as a Nets assistant coach. You can't be anti-Semi an anti-Semite when you know you are Semite, West tweeted in defense of Irving, who shared a link to an anti-Semitic documentary. Irving had expressed the same idea in a press conference on October 29th, which led the Nets to suspend him. He later apologized for his rhetoric. In later tweets, West said, they make us bully ourselves because of our business alignments. Referring to Stoudemire, who is black and who criticized Irving for his refusal to condemn anti-Semitism, West wrote, they make us attack each other, even our brothers who know who we truly are. The wording of West's tweets made reference to common tropes that have circulated among black Hebrew-Israelite communities, including that they are the genealogical descendants of the ancient Israelites. As of Friday afternoon, West's account remained active on Twitter. Also recently reinstated on Twitter, the account of Mark Fincham, Arizona's Republican nominee for Secretary of State, whose account had been suspended. Fincham, who has received a reported $10,000 in donations from far-right anti-government militia the Oath Keepers, despite his own insistence he is not a member of the group, regularly tweets references to Jewish billionaires George Soros and Mike Bloomberg funding his Democratic opponent. He has also proudly accepted the endorsement of Andrew Torba, an outspoken anti-Semite and founder of the Gab social media platform, which is rife with anti-Semitic users. Fincham's account was restored a little over a week prior to midterm elections and prior to Musk's meeting with the ADL. The candidate, who also denies the results of the 2020 election, thanked Musk for reinstating him, declaring Twitter is much better with you at the helm. Like other right-wing politicians and media figures who make regular references to Soros, Fincham has said such behavior is not anti-Semitic. He refuted a charge of anti-Semitism by declaring, I love the Jews, but has also frequently employed language calling his opponents Marxists, a charge that historically anti-Semites dating back to the Great Depression-era radio preacher Father Coughlin have directed at liberal or secular Jews. All of this activity came as Twitter employees braced themselves for a round of mass layoffs Friday, 
with as many as half of the company's 7,500 jobs reportedly on the line, sowing further chaos at the company as Musk has sought to rethink its top-down operations. The layoffs could endanger future efforts to craft coherent new policies around how content is moderated and how accounts are reinstated. Musk said that such a process would take weeks. As Musk uh, moved forward with his plans and threats of real-world violence at synagogues multiplied, Jewish users expressed anger and frustration. A few said they would leave altogether. At this point in time, we are calling on advertisers to pause their spending globally until it becomes clear whether Twitter remains committed to being a safe place for advertisers, as well as society overall. Stop hate for profit, said in its statement. And next, from JTA, New Mexico's cash-strapped lawsuit-plagued Jewish Federation announces closure by Asaf Elia Shalev. After a series of bitter legal and boardroom battles within the Jewish Federation of New Mexico over the past two years, the 75-year-old community organization announced Friday that it has collapsed under the weight of the discord and will shut down. The main task we face is an orderly shutdown of the organization, the Federation's newly chosen president, Robert Efroy-Mason, announced in an email sent out to the community. Confirming previous reporting by JTA, Efroy-Mason said the Federation's budget and programs have all ceased to exist. We are almost out of money, he wrote. We have no employees. Critical insurance has been canceled. We cannot fulfill the purposes for which the organization was founded. In New Mexico, as with every state or metropolitan area served by one of the 146 Jewish federations in North America, the organization operated as a critical convener of Jewish life and distributed charitable donations to an array of local causes. A program supporting local Holocaust survivors is now under the management of the local Jewish community center, said Efroimson, adding that the Hillel chapter at the University of New Mexico previously a major grantee of the Federation, is accepting donations directly. Efroimson appeared to rule out the possibility of rebuilding the Federation from scratch. He said the Federation has been hobbled by unspecified actions taken by previous leaders, including the Federation's former executive director, Rob Lenick, who has since been hired as the head of the Jewish Federation of Volusia and Flager counties in Florida. Decisions made by the prior leadership of the organization have placed us in a very poor position, Efraimson wrote. He vowed to detail which decisions and how they contributed to this moment once the Federation's new board has completed a probe into the matter. I would like to say more about how, we, how this uh, came to pass, he wrote. The truth is that there is much we still don't know. One of the chief tasks the board has undertaken is to conduct an independent accounting review so we can report to the community what has happened. Lenick, who was ordained as a reform rabbi, is not a member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the professional association for rabbis of reform Judaism, according to a spokesperson for CCAR. In March, JTA revealed that two employees had sued the Federation, alleging misconduct by Lenick, and that about half the board resigned following a related alleged breach of trust by the Federation's executive committee with an additional four board members staying on only to seek redress by taking matters to court. Responding to a request for comment, 
Eric Fingerhut, President and CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America, wrote in a statement, We are saddened by the situation that led the Jewish Federation of New Mexico to make this decision, but believe it was the correct choice under the circumstance. More importantly, we commit that we will do everything we can in partnership with the Jewish community there to rebuild the kind of federation they need and deserve so that their community can flourish. A JFNA spokesperson added that his organization, the National Umbrella Group for All Jewish Federations, worked locally to help maintain continuity for as many core programs as possible. Next from JTA, Reform Rabbi to be knighted by Pope Francis for his work on Jewish-Catholic relations by Jackie Hoshtenberg. A. James Rudin, a leading Reform Rabbi and educator and the longtime director of interreligious affairs at the American Jewish Committee, will be knighted under the Papal Order of St. Gregory for his work on Catholic-Jewish relations. He will become the ninth Jewish person to receive the honor in the Order's nearly 200-year history. Other Jews so knighted include Walter Annenberg, the philanthropist and creator of TV Guide, the prominent conservative Rabbi Mordechai Waxman, Argentine interfaith advocate Rabbi Leon Klinicki, Rabbi David Rosen of the AJC, and various philanthropists, business people, and musicians with Jewish ancestry. The honor recognizes people whose work has supported the Catholic Church, which can include Jews focused on interfaith projects. Earlier this year, Rudin, 88, published a memoir, The People in the Room, Rabbis, Nuns, Pastors, Popes, and Presidents, which recounts his many trips abroad during his time working at the AJC as part of his work to improve Jewish-Christian relations in the years after the Holocaust. For more than 50 years, Rabbi James Rudin has worked to advance Catholic-Jewish relations and interfaith relations on a wider scale with extraordinary skill, dedication, and success, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, Archbishop of Boston, said in a statement. The impact of this work continues to grow as successive generations build on the foundation Rabbi Rudin has established. In his memoir, Rudin recounts how growing up in Alexandria, Virginia, among Southern Baptists, he and his Catholic classmates were singled out during a class reading on the New Testament and asked to leave the room. After graduating from rabbinical school at Hebrew Union College, Rudin served as an Air Force chaplain in Japan and Korea, where he befriended a Catholic priest with whom he partnered to lead Catholic Jewish programming. When he finished his service in the Air Force, Rudin served as a pulpit rabbi at multiple Midwestern synagogues before joining the American Jewish Committee in 1968. He eventually became the AJC's Director of Interreligious Affairs and continued his work in Jewish-Catholic interfaith spaces. Rudin also founded the Center for Catholic Jewish Studies at St. Leo University, a Catholic liberal arts university in western Florida, where he is currently listed as a visiting professor and serves on the advisory board. The investiture ceremony honoring him will take place on November 20th on the St. Leo campus. Rabbi Eric J. Greenberg, director of the United Nations Relations and Strategic Partnerships for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, helped nominate Rudin for the honor. This knighthood clearly demonstrates the evolving positive relations between Catholics and Jews, Greenberg said. Rabbi Rudin well deserves this historic international honor. Next from JTA, London Theatre Group cancels Nazi, Jewish, Romeo and Juliet after a wave of criticism by Jackie Hodgdenberg. The London-based theatre group behind a Romeo and Juliet-inspired Nazi-Jewish love story 
has canceled the play after receiving an onslaught of criticism related to the story's premise and a botched casting call. The Icarus Theatre Collective, the group behind the play, put out a casting call Friday for their Romeo and Juliet over email and on social media, specifically calling for non-binary artists and or those of global majority, black or Asian heritage, to audition for the reimagined roles of Romeo and Mercutio, as well as a female presenting actor to play the traditionally male character of Tybalt. But for the role of Juliet, the Jewish counterpart to Romeo's character in The Hitler Youth, the Icarus Theatre Collaborative did not include a specific request for Jewish actors to audition as part of the casting call. In an era of increased scrutiny over the casting of Jewish actors to play Jewish characters, the omission drew criticism. Speaking with the Jewish Chronicle, Max Lewendel, the Jewish founder of the Icarus Theatre Collective and director of Romeo and Juliet, said the initial casting call specified that Juliet Capulet and her parents be played by actors with preferably Jewish heritage. Lewendel said the final draft of the casting call was put out by the casting director and should have included a preference for Jewish actors. That is absolutely not what was intended, and apologies to anyone that was understandably affected by this, Lewendel told the Jewish Chronicle. In an apology tweet Monday, the Icarus Theatre Collaborative wrote, These are not two households both alike in dignity, referring to lines from the prologue of Romeo and Juliet, which the group says it had cut from their versions of the p- version of the play because it puts the, put the Nazi Montagues and the Jewish Capulets on equal footing. Please understand, our intention in Romeo and Juliet is to portray the Montagues as the bad guys and the kids brainwashed, As per Jojo Rabbit, the thread continued, referencing the 2019 comedy drama about a boy in the Hitler Youth, particularly as a criticism of the current political situation. The group also wrote that part of its research and development process has always been to include members of the Jewish community to presentations as we recognize that the director's background is not sufficient to ensure proper presentation of this dangerous concept. These are not two households, both alike in dignity. The Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, a British watchdog group, publicly criticized the play. In a tweet, the group said it is staggering that anyone who would find this play about morally equivalent feuding families to be an appropriate way to explore Nuremberg-era persecution of Jews by Nazi Germany. It's the increasing fascism in the world today that has kind of become a trend in my work, Lewendell told the Jewish Chronicle about his decision to situate the play during the Holocaust. Public response to the premise of the play itself has been mostly negative. This is a monumentally terrible idea, one, Twitter, uh, one user wrote on Twitter. This new Romeo and Juliet Nazi idea feels so genuinely like a 30 Rock episode that I simply have to laugh at the absurdity, another person wrote. The group's official description of the play reads, In defiance of their entire society and in secrecy from their closest friends, hopeful young lives burn amidst a cataclysmic backdrop of impending war and the horror of the Holocaust. Sun and moon shine down on star-crossed lovers as a Jewish girl falls for a member of Hitler Youth and the boy questions everything he was taught to believe. The show was scheduled to run in March 2023. 
Next from JTA, Russian official apologizes for op-ed that country's Jewish leaders called vulgar anti-Semitism by Felissa Kramer. A Russian official has apologized after his deputy published an op-ed that referred to the Chabad-Lubavitch movement of Orthodox Judaism as a neo-pagan cult striving for global domination. Top leaders of Chabad in Russia who have been navigating a fine line in their relationship with the government during the country's war in Ukraine criticized the column published last week in a state magazine as anti-Semitic. Russian Chief Rabbi Beryl Lazer, who is part of Chabad, called the column a piece of vulgar anti-Semitism. His top deputy warned that the column heralded a new era in Russian, uh, Russia's relations with Jews. In the column published in the Argumenti e Facti weekly newspaper, Alexei Pavlov, Secretary of the Security Council of Russia, a government committee of experts, spoke of the need to perform desatanization in Ukraine, which Pavlov claimed had hundreds of neo-pagan cults. He included the Chabad Lubavitch sect, as he called it, on a list of various religious groups that, said, that he said proved his point. Nikolai Petrushev, a high-ranking official for the Security Council, said in a statement issued last Friday that the column did not represent an official government position. I apologize for the op-ed, which contains several erroneous statements about the followers of Chabad Lubavitch, read the statement. This interpretation represented only Alexei Pavlov's personal point of view and in no way represents that of the Security Council of Russia. Talks have been had with the writer of the op-ed. This episode is notable because of the force with which Jewish leaders inside and outside Russia responded. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, Chabad's leaders in Russia have walked a fine line amid a crackdown on free speech in the country. They refrained from the open embrace that many other religious leaders showed, and that Moscow's former chief rabbi, who was not part of Chabad, said he faced pressure to demonstrate before he fled the country. Instead, they have expressed displeasure about the war while not denouncing Russian President Vladimir Putin, and while continuing to serve Russian Jews, even as tens of thousands of them have left amid deteriorating conditions there. As Putin's war has sputtered, signs of open anti-Semitism have crept into public discourse, including in state media, a worrying shift in a country where oppression of Jews and at times violence against them was policy for many decades until recently. The rare apology by a Russian public official suggests that the perception that anti-Semitism is government policy is unwelcome. The Orthodox rabbi who left the country, Pinkett's Goldschmidt, renewed his call for Russians, uh, Russia's Jews to leave the country after the attack on Chabad last week, an attack by the Russian government against Chabad, as well as the attacks against the Jewish Agency for Israel, are anti-Semitic acts against all of us, he said referring to a government case against the organization that facilitates emigration to Israel for Russian Jews. That message resonated beyond Russia. Ronald Lauder, president of the World Jewish Congress, also issued a statement condemning the criticism of Chabad. Alexei Pavlov's remarks accusing Chabad of being a neo-pagan cult in search of world domination can be categorized as nothing other than anti-Semitism. Jew hatred in its purest and ugliest form, said Louder. 
who said Lazer was a longtime friend. Chabad is an integral part of the global Jewish community. Any disparaging attack on Chabad and the Chabad community in Russia, let alone an attack that amounts to blood libel, is an attack on the Jewish people as a whole. And now we go over to the Times of Israel for an op-ed by its editor-in-chief and founder, David Horowitz. Netanyahu, who mainstreamed Israel's radicals, now the last obstacle to their agenda. The comeback PM will have no trouble assembling his coalition. The challenge will be reining in his allies in the areas where he'd still want to when he has no alternate partners. Benjamin Netanyahu, who has always been most comfortable having parties both to the right and the left of him and his coalitions, may not see it as ideal to set up a government only of right-wing hawks, orthodox nationalists, and ultra-orthodox representatives. He will be well aware that such a government will breed immense resentment from Israelis elsewhere on the political spectrum for entrenching the, the exclusion of ultra-orthodox youngsters from military service and subsidizing Haredi full-time Torah study and large families at taxpayers' expense. He will be dependent on ideological hardliners who constantly push for more aggressive policies regarding the Palestinians, potentially sparking deeper military confrontations. He will want to avoid sp sparking despair or even an exodus of Israelis who don't see a place for themselves in a country ruled by a coalition that is so at odds with their approaches to Judaism and to democracy and are consequently reluctant to serve or send their children to serve in its army. In some areas, at least, he would prefer not to advance policies that risk deeply harming Israeli ties with the diaspora and with key allies, undermining diplomatic support, damaging the economy, and inviting new heights of international criticism. Netanyahu, remember, is no military adventurer. Unlike an overwhelming proportion of the incoming members of Knesset from his bloc, he served in the IDF, served heroically, and personally knows the costs of war and conflict with the death of his beloved elder brother Yoni at Antebi. And Netanyahu is a secular Jew whose Jewish identity is not expressed in the rigorous observance of the Orthodox and the Haredi. But as he begins the process of building his sixth Israeli coalition government, the unusual simplicity of the task belies its potentially drastic consequences. Netanyahu's Likud, the far-right religious Zionism, and the ultra-Orthodox Shas and United Torah Judaism parties together won a decisive majority in last Tuesday's elections, but no other party is remotely likely to join them. Even if he wanted them, no other party would consent to sit to Netanyahu's left in the government. His loyal partners would not sanction such an addition, and any such party would in, case, in any case have no significant leverage. And thus it will fall to Netanyahu, increasingly hawkish himself, to try to moderate those demands of his allies and have his own hawkish Likud slate that he still considers beyond the pale. Having ensured mainstream legitimacy for the Religious Zionism Alliance with its three component parties, various radical demands for the expulsion of disloyal Arabs, the annexation of the entire West Bank without equal rights for Palestinians, Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, a pushback against LGBT rights, and more, it will now fall to Netanyahu to rein in the most radical agenda items should he be so inclined. 
given that they know he has no coalition without them, this will constitute a formidable task. But it will be him or nobody, especially if Israel's judicial checks and balances are removed as religious Zionism proposes and this nation coalition widely endorses. The Likud leader and his allies won an unexpectedly solid majority on Tuesday thanks to a combination of factors within his control and without. He brokered the merger of the religious Zionism, Otzma Yehudit, and Noam parties because he feared religious Zionism's Betzalel Smotrich uh, and Noam's Abi Maoz might fail to clear the electoral threshold, wasting precious far-right votes, and had no compunction in ensuring the Kahanist disciple Itamar Ben-Gavir's return to the Knesset. He may not have anticipated how potent an election draw Ben-Gavir would become, and he could not have known that the National Unity Party of Benny Gantz with Orthodox candidates Chili Troper and new recruit Matan Kahana, available to reach out to non-extreme modern Orthodox Jews, would instead choose to play up its other new recruit, Gadi uh, Eisenkot, with an outspoken advocate of a two-state solution. With its populist promises to restore Jewish-Israeli sense of security, religious Zionism, led by Smotrich, who did limited military service, and Ben Gavir, who was rejected by the IDF because of his extremist activities, won the votes of one in five serving soldiers, according to a calculation by Channel 12 News last Friday, more than national unity, with its two ex-military chiefs of staff, one of them the serving defense minister who has been presiding over the most proactive IDF campaign for years against Palestinian terrorists in the West Bank. Crucial to the Netanyahu bloc's larger-than-most-expected majority, furthermore, were the delusions and the ineptitudes on the other side of the political spectrum. The Arab anti-Zionist Balad party appears to believe it achieved the stirring victory by scoring 138,093 votes after breaking off from joint-list partners Hadash Ta'al to run solo. Since this represented only 2.9 of valid votes cast, and the threshold for Knesset representation is 3.25%. However, such success is pyrrhic. Likewise, the insistent refusal of Labour's Marav Micheli to parallel the religious Zionism technical merger and join forces with merits on the left and outgoing Prime Minister Yair Lapid's evident inability to find sufficient carrots or sticks to change her mind meant Meretz also slipped below the threshold with 150,715 votes, or 3.16% of the national vote. The disunity among parties in the outgoing coalition saw Yesh Atid and National Unity vying for the same votes, rather than focusing on the Netanyahu bloc. And Lapid seemed to run a defensive, understated campaign for fear of being accused of seeking to siphon off votes from Labour and Merits, who accused him of doing so anyway. It is being argued, including by expert pollsters, that had Labour merged with Merits and Balad not split away from Hadash Ta'al, the election would have ended with 60 seats for the Netanyahu bloc and 60 for all his opponents. That would not have given Lapid a route to power, but it would have thwarted Netanyahu for a fifth time in less than four years, with unknowable consequences for his hold on the leadership of his party and bloc.
but the 60-60 assessment strikes me as extremely problematic. While it is reasonable to assume that laser, uh, Labor and Merits running together would have scored several more than the four seats Labor managed alone, it's not a certainty. Gidon Sa'ar's New Hope merger with Gantz didn't do much for the National Unity Alliance's showing. Some Labor voters might have been deterred from voting for a merge list by Merits's markedly more left-wing positions on the Palestinian conflict by the role played by Meretz's Gaida Renawi Zawabi in bringing down the outgoing coalition and a host of other factors. The Balad breakaway, meanwhile, plainly boosted Arab turnout, which rose to 53.2% from a predicted 40% or thereabouts earlier in the campaign, drawing in voters who would not have voted for the Hadash Ta'al Balad combination. It seems unlikely, therefore, that those three parties running together would have garnered as many votes as they did with Balad going solo. Still, if 60-60 seems like an exaggeration, more unity of purpose and more effective organization in the anti-Netanyahu camp could plainly have reduced his bloc's overwhelming, by recent Israeli standards, margin of victory as the near parity in the popular vote totals further underlines. The Lapid camp did not want to campaign with the vicious ferocity employed by the other side, extending to Netanyahu's cynical assault on Gantz's IDF bona fides, but it also failed to match Netanyahu and Ben Gavir for energy and sheer relentlessness. As so often in the past, Netanyahu, ably assisted by all of his partners, simply wanted it more. Helped back into power by his far-right and ultra-Orthodox allies, however, Netanyahu can build his coalition only with them and cannot attract a potentially moderating additional component as he did in past years with the likes of Gantz, Lapid, Sipi Livni, and Ehud Barak. There is no question of Lapid ever partnering with him, as he did in 2013. Gantz chose to do so in 2020 at the height of the COVID crisis and swears blind that he will never do so again. Abigdor Lieberman said Friday that he had firmly rebuffed post-election Likud overtures. It is not inconceivable that Netanyahu could pick up a de facto or two from the soon-to-be opposition ranks, but it's not an extra vote or two he would need. It's a full-fledged party that he might have sought to woo in the spirit of his election night pledge to heal the rifts and look after all the citizens of Israel, or at least to slightly diversify the ideological mix. He might just have attempted to impose this additional party on his partners in deference to the deep Israeli divide all these elections have shown, a divide he had hitherto exploited. But there are no such parties, no more potential, unscarred allies remaining for Netanyahu to utilize. After, after the demise of the most diverse coalition in Israeli history, therefore we are now about to witness the most hardline coalition in Israeli history the most orthodox, and possibly the most ideologically uncompromising. Several analysts have ventured to suggest in recent days that once seated in their ministerial fiefdoms, like uh, the likes of Smotrich and Ben-Gavir will melt a little. What you see from here is not what you see from there, as Ariel Sharon, who made that kind of shift when installed as prime minister, once explained. But this seems uh, particularly improbable in the case of the leaders of religious Zionism. Smotrich forced Netanyahu into the opposition last year because he wouldn't tolerate any reliance for a majority on the support of the conservative Islamist party Ra'am. Ben-Gavir 
has been peddling his brand of provocation politics since he brandished the Cadillac symbol from Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's car shortly before the assassination, exactly 27 years ago. With his fifth attempt, Netanyahu has extricated Israel from its political paralysis. He might, should he choose to break his slew of pledges to the contrary, utilize the Knesset majority he now has to extricate himself from his legal problems. Smotrich said before the elections that he would not join the coalition unless it advances his program to render the judiciary subservient to the political majority of the day program that includes abolishing the fraud and breach of trust charge common to all three of Netanyahu's corruption cases and radically limiting the high court's powers to override legislation deemed non-democratic. While Smotrich said his proposed legal changes would not be retroactively applied to Netanyahu's trial, Ben-Gavir said the opposite, promising to advance legislation barring the prosecution of a serving prime minister and to have it applied retroactively to extricate Netanyahu. In this specific area of judicial reform, manifestly of great personal interest to Netanyahu, the unstoppable cloud of this particular coalition could therefore prove highly beneficial. In many other areas, however, his allies' agendas will be less convenient. He will find himself on the moderate edge of a radical coalition challenged by his partners when he tries to rein them in and presiding over a bitterly divided nation. The cries are already going up. Heaven forbid that you give Smotrich a senior office of state, least of all defense. Don't capitulate to the Haredim and widen the ultra-Orthodox secular rifts. And most plaintive of all, don't entrust pistol-waving Ben Gavir with authority over the police. This is a man who was convicted of incitement to racism. How can he be allowed to set the agenda for the forces of law enforcement? How can he be allowed to participate in security briefings regarding Jewish extremists he has allied with, and in some cases defended as a lawyer? How can he be allowed to set policy on the Temple Mount? Think of your legacy, the incoming Prime Minister is being urged. Think of the Israelis who didn't vote for you whom the departing alternate Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is seeking to assure that Tuesday's elections did not mark the end of the country. Think of Israel's wider interests. But it's too late for that now. Netanyahu's political opponents sought to boot him out of politics once and for all, setting up a government united only in that goal. But he outlasted, outmaneuvered, and outcampaigned them shamelessly mainstreaming some of Israel's most extreme ideologues in the process. And now only Netanyahu, victorious but in their debt, self-interested in some of their reforms, and with no other forces to call upon, stands between them and their radical agenda for Israel. And next from the Times of Israel, Jewish Agency. Police will be deployed to guard Western Wall's egalitarian section. Organization says it's working to improve security at Jerusalem's old city, Ezrat Yisrael prayer site, and better explain its importance to Israelis after disruptions this summer, by Judah Ari Gross. The Jerusalem police force has agreed to boost security at the Western Wall's egalitarian section following violent protests at the site this summer, 
a top Jewish agency official told the organization's Board of Governors on Sunday. In late June, a group of Orthodox extremists entered the egalitarian section and disrupted a number of bar and bat mitzvah ceremonies taking place there, blowing whistles to drown out the prayers, calling the worshippers Christians and Nazis and tearing up prayer books. Police who were at the scene largely allowed these disruptions to continue, only intervening when there was explicit violence. In response to this incident, the Jewish Agency Board of Governors passed a resolution calling the incident despicable and demanding that the organization take action to ensure the safety of visitors to the egalitarian section, also known as Ezrat Yisrael and Robinson's Arch. We've pushed forward to improve the security. I think the situation now is much better, said Jewish Agency Chairman Doran Almog. However, he stressed that making immediate security improvements was only part of the Jewish Agency's overall plans for the egalitarian section. The organization is still officially committed to getting the government to implement the long-stalled Western Wall Compromise, which, among other things, would give full control over the egalitarian section to non-Orthodox denominations. Currently, the ultra-Orthodox Western Wall Chief Rabbi has official authority over it. As Rat Yisrael, issue is highly important for us, representing the mosaic of all the Jewish people equally, Almog said. The Western Wall Compromise was approved by the government in 2016 before being indefinitely mothballed due to ultra-Orthodox opposition. The agreement is unlikely to be implemented under the presumed next government of Israel, which is expected to be the most Orthodox coalition in the country's history. Josh Schwartz, Secretary General of the Jewish Agency, who was tapped with spearheading the security improvements, updated the board about his efforts, specifically his meeting with the head of the Jerusalem District's David Station, which is located in the Old City. Schwartz said he met with the commander of the David Station shortly after the resolution was passed to discuss the issue and that he was very, very open. Following the meeting, the officer agreed to deploy approximately five officers to the egalitarian section at the start of every Jewish month, a holiday known as Rosh Chodesh. This is because the religious rights activist group Women of the Wall holds protest prayers at the Western Wall on those days, which are met by generally violent counter-protests. Schwartz said the police deployment was aimed at curbing spillover from those clashes into the egalitarian section. This way, police won't have to be called in. They will already be stationed in Ezrat Yisrael, Schwartz said. In addition to the police, uh, the police agreed to install a security camera in the egalitarian section to allow officers to more easily monitor the situation there, he said. Over 1,000 security cameras are installed in Jerusalem's old city, but currently the only one with a view of the egalitarian section sits atop the Temple Mount and offers only a partial view of the site. It is further blocked by the umbrellas that are typically used to shade the plaza. The Israel police did not immediately confirm Schwartz's claims. Since the incident, in late June, there have been no violent protests held at the egalitarian section. Fears that further protests would occur on the Tisha B'Av day of mourning this past August, as occurred the year before, did not materialize. This was at least in part attributed to the fact that Israel was fighting a minor battle with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror group in the Gaza Strip at the same time. The U.S. government has also pushed for Israeli authorities to improve security at the site following the disruptions in June, as all of the families who were present at the time were American citizens. 
At the time, U.S. Special Envoy on anti-Semitism Deborah Lipstadt said there'd be little hesitation in labeling what happened anti-Semitism had it happened in any other country. Jewish Agency CEO Amira Aharonovitz said the organization was also working to boost the egalitarian section's standing among Israelis, many of whom were entirely unaware of its existence and purpose. We are trying to bring it to their awareness and to get them to make use of Ezrat Yisrael, Aronovitz said. She said the Jewish agency was working to encourage local communities across Israel to establish egalitarian prayer spaces in their own municipalities. Aronovitz said the organization planned to advance this as at an upcoming meeting of Israeli municipalities, which is scheduled for next month. We are committed to bring our ac- bringing our assets and expertise into making this happen, she said. And we'll go back to JTA now. After criticism, Taylor Swift adds orthodox-friendly dates to her upcoming tour by Caleb Guedes reed You're on your own, kid isn't just the name of a track on Taylor Swift's newest album. The phrase describes the way many of the pop star's Jewish fans were feeling after she released the dates for her upcoming tour. This week, Shabbat observant Swifties voiced their disappointment with the dates, which were all slated for during or just after the end of the Jewish Sabbath on Friday or Saturday nights. There was one scheduled for April 2nd, a Sunday in Arlington, Texas. In response, Swift added eight more shows to the U.S. leg of her tour on Friday, all on weeknights in cities such as Philadelphia, Seattle, and Los Angeles. Many applauded the additions. Swift's Midnight's album sold over a million copies in its first week, and she is now tied with Barbara Streisand as the female artist with the most albums to top the Billboard chart. The singer will take the Jewish Haim sisters, who feature in the music video for Swift's song Bejeweled, along for part of the tour. And next in the New York Jewish Week, Ben Platt plays Jewish martyr Leo Frank in a timely musical revival by Andrew Silo Carroll. A New York revival of the 1998 Broadway musical Parade about the 1915 lynching of a Jewish man, Leo Frank, at the hands of a southern mob, arrives at an auspicious, if not ominous, time. Anti-Semitism is again part of the national conversation, while nationalism and accusations of racism form the backdrop to next week's midterm elections. As the star of the revival, Ben Platt told the New York Times, this show is all about not only anti-Semitism, but the failure of the country to protect lots of marginalized groups. And we're all feeling that really intensely right now. Of course, a musical about national trauma is not everyone's cup of sweet tea. And despite its Tony-winning book and score, Parade has always been dogged by criticism that it is too relentlessly downbeat to pull in the crowds. Not this new streamlined production, part of New York City Center's limited-run series of encores, Revivals. The last performance is November 6th. Thanks to Platt and a huge, excellent cast that includes Gaetan Matarazzato, Dustin from the Netflix series Stranger Things, the show manages to be stirring and, yes, entertaining, without losing sight of the tragedy at the core. The Leo Frank story is America's Dreyfus Affair. Frank was a Jewish Brooklyn-born college graduate who managed a pencil factory in Atlanta, Georgia, owned by a relative. In 1913, the body of a 13-year-old factory worker, Mary Fagan, was found in the factory cellar, and the police fingered Frank 
in the rape and murder. After a trial marked by flimsy evidence and implausible eyewitness testimony, Frank was found guilty and sentenced to death in 1915. A rabid local press demonized the Jewish outsider, leading progressive politicians and newspapers from outside the South to demand that Governor Georgia Governor John M. Slayton commute Frank's sentence and reopen the case. Slayton relented, uh, relented but on August 16, 1915, an armed mob snatched Frank from prison and lynched him in Marietta, Georgia. The case famously inspired a revival of the Ku Klux Klan and led to the founding of the Anti-Defamation League, today's powerful Jewish defense and civil rights group. Parade with a book by Alfred Urey, who wrote Driving Miss Daisy, and music and lyrics by Jason Robert Brown leans hard into the hysteria surrounding the Frank case. The various townspeople form a Greek chorus demanding justice. There are characters representing the racist, sensationalist press. There is a politically ambitious prosecutor, a cynical judge, and in the case of Slayton's character, a genteel southern governor caught between an angry public and his own instinct to do the right thing. The musical centers what begins as a strained relationship between Frank and his wife Lucille, a Jewish Atlanta native. There are laughs early in the show when Platt talks and sings about the differences between the Jews he grew up with and the Southern variety. Their marriage is portrayed as a cold, sterile affair with Frank too concerned with things at the factory to notice the loving, generous Lucille. The warming of their relationship, culminating in a jailhouse duet, All the Wasted Time, forms the emotional arc of the show. This could come off as schmaltzy, but the City Center production stays grounded in historical reality. Contemporary newspaper clippings and images of the real-life historical figures being portrayed are projected on the rear wall of the stage in lieu of conventional scenery. Encores productions are only partially staged. Platt, small and vulnerable, with a catch of his, in his singing voice, humanizes Frank. I object to the idea that only Jews should play Jewish characters, but I concede that Platt's background, he is famously Jewish in a Camp Ramah, his mother is a leading Jewish philanthropist kind of way, adds a level of resonance to his performance. The show is a helpful reminder about the potent force anti-Semitism was in America until it was driven largely to the fringes after World War II. The Frank case is a historical rebuke to those who cannot imagine Jews as a minority or a persecuted class. It helps explain why groups like the ADL remain so adamant in exposing and combating anti-Semitism in its present-day forms. Die-hard conspiracy theories, political dog whistles, online harassments, street attacks on Orthodox Jews, and yes, spasms of deadly violence. And yet Parade is careful not to take this refutation of white privilege too far. Act 2 begins with a duet sang by the black domestic workers at the governor's mansion. Anticipating the hordes of northern reporters coming to cover the Frank trial, they sing bitterly. The local hotels wouldn't be so packed if a little black girl had gotten attacked. Nor they sing, would the press have cared if the wrongly accused defendant was black. Their song is a necessary corrective in a musical about the post-Reconstruction South that focuses on the lynching of a white man. The audience for Tuesday night's premiere was ecstatic, and the wild applause for the performers was well-deserved. Brown led the orchestra and invited Yuri, now 85, to join him in the cast during curtain calls. 
Still, there is something strange about cheering a musical that begins and end, uh, ends with a pulse-quickening pro-Confederate anthem called The Old Red Hills of Home. The song is clearly meant to be ironic, and its power effectively implicates the listener in the kind of nationalist fervor that so often goes so terribly wrong. The question that lingered is whether we were being invited to look down on backward southerners of yore or recognize the ugly nativist trends that still animate American politics. Next from JTA, FBI, person who made New Jersey synagogue threat identified and no longer poses a danger, by Felissa Kramer. The morning after the FBI urged caution amid what it said was a broad threat to synagogues in New Jersey, local Jews are being told they no longer need to worry. Upon receipt of threat information against an unspecified New Jersey area synagogue, the FBI notified community leaders and our law enforcement partners, the FBI announced in a statement last Friday morning. We identified the source of the threat who no longer poses a danger to the community. As always, we would like to remind the public to remain vigilant and if they observe suspicious activity to report it to law enforcement immediately. The person who is identified as having made the threat is in custody, according to an array of Jewish and law enforcement organizations. He is from New Jersey, they said. The agent in charge of the FBI's Newark office offered more details to state and federal law enforcement officials and hundreds of Jewish leaders on a conference call. A man who holds radical extremist views was identified as being behind the threat and no longer poses a threat to the community at this time, the agent said, according to a report from the call published in the New York Times. The agent did not say whether the man would be charged with a crime, according to the report, which also did not indicate whether authorities had illuminated what kind of extremist views the person held. A law enforcement source told NBC New York that the man had said he was angry at Jews but did not plan to commit violence because he did not want to get in trouble. In a different call on Friday for New York City, Jewish leaders and NYPD officers said the man had been pre uh, previously known to the FBI and that the electronics he had been using had been seized. Police in New York City would step up their monitoring of synagogues and ask community members to share information about when they are holding services to make that possible, officials said. The press conferences came after local Jewish leaders began informing their communities that the warning issued Thursday night had been lifted. The threat is no longer active. The head of Golda Oak Academy, a Jewish day school in West Orange, New Jersey, emailed parents Friday morning shortly after the school day began. What kind of threat synagogues faced had not been specified previously and was not specified in the communication by the school or another by the Orthodox Union that was shared with some community members. The broad and unusual threat had thrown Jews and their congregations into a state of alarm late last Thursday and many synagogues interrupted their normal operations Friday to shore up their security protocols. We will continue our heightened vigilance, but I wanted you to have this reassuring information which has not yet been reported publicly, the day school leader Rabbi Danny Nevins wrote in his email. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.